Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. When I was given information to read about Matt Genovese, founder and CEO of Planorama Design and our guest on the Software People Stories podcast, one thing caught my attention, getting it right the first time and how he brought in some of the principles of hardware design into software engineering. When we started the conversation, it began for Matt at a very young age, tinkering with electronic kits impactful dinnertime conversations with his engineer father and programming since he was in middle school. Our conversation extends over two parts, where the first one explores his experience working at Motorola to how he realized that focusing on getting requirements right meant building better software. Stay tuned for this conversation. We explored a lot of topics here. I'm sure you'll find something interesting if you have had to produce or consume software at some point in time. Good morning, Matt, and a very warm welcome to you to the Software People Stories podcast. I'm very excitedly looking towards this conversation. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it as well. We usually started the uh, podcast by asking our guests to introduce themselves. So how would you like to do that for our listeners today? Well, uh, so my name is Matt Genovese. Um, I've been an, uh, an engineer uh, you know, professionally for about 25 years, but realistically, I started uh, longer than that. I was a when I was a kid, uh, going back to when I was eight years old, I started on the Commodore VIC-20 uh, back in the 80s, which will probably date me a bit. But uh, I, I started learning how to program as a kid and and uh, on the little eight-bit computers. And uh, my my father was an engineer, so he. He was very uh, enthusiastic to help to have me start learning how to how to use it, how to program, and I was building uh, building things on it and trying to even build, I guess what you would call IoT, <laughs> uh, back when I was in middle school. Uh, you know, trying to build projects that might use the Commodore, uh, and uh, but anyway, fast forwarding from from there, I've been about uh, about half my career I worked in chip design. Uh, in uh, logic design and verification. And then the other half of my career, I spent in uh, product uh, software, on the software side of the world in uh, product management, various uh, uh, roles in that area. Uh, and then today I, I run a, uh, a software product requirements firm called Planorama Design. Uh, we do uh, product requirements for, for software and uh, IoT systems. Uh, and that goes everywhere from the requirements and discovery all the way through UX design and documentation. So uh, in a nutshell, that's that's a very fast forwarded look <laughs> at, my, at my life going back from eight years old forward. Thank you. I'm sure we'll explore bits and pieces of that, uh, you know, through the course of this conversation. Mm-hmm. So you said you got interested in building things and making things uh, ever since you were little and uh, mm-hmm. you know perhaps having a computer 
on hand and uh, you know having a parent that that's an engineer too yes. helped did it help or um and, and this is a question i have for a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, because uh, where we grow up in this part of the world your parents definitely have a say in the kind of uh, education you choose to pursue as well as mm-hmm. what you do and um uh, sure. for example my my dad an engineer too but i would okay. refrain from asking him questions because then he would ask me 10 questions in return and then i'd get upset if i didn't answer them <laughs> i'll tell you this my 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 father and i and and you know i grew up with with my mom and my dad uh, my but my dad being the engineer um we ended up getting into very interesting conversations at the dinner table um where we would chat about uh, like trigonometry, he taught me trigonometry when I was in in middle school or, or mm. earlier, because you know we started talking about triangles and how they were interesting and, and the different properties of them. Uh, we would talk about things like infinity, right? And what does that mean? And I started realizing uh, that triangles were interesting because if you start taking the the one point of the triangle and drawing it out very very far, those angles on the other two sides start going to 90 degrees. And I realized, mm. like, wait a minute, does that mean that that uh, lines that are 90 degrees that, you know, on a triangle, does, does that mean when the point goes to infinity that those angles are 90? And does that mean parallel lines meet at infinity? And he was like, well, I'm uh, I'm not sure. I better take that to work and start talking to the other engineers and figure that out. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it, but it was, it was more conversational. And he, he certainly... Uh, I, you know, that was an area where he had a lot of interest. He was a mechanical engineer and I, uh, you know, I had an appreciation and I certainly did like to tinker and take things apart, uh, which was sometimes my downfall uh, <laughs> because I had to, put, had to get them back together and, and hopefully put them together in a way that it still functioned. Uh, but, you know, while mechanical was his area, uh, my area was more on the electronic side and I, uh, he, he had, they had given me, my parents gave me one of those uh, 50 and one or 101 electronic kits from Radio Shack. And I used to put together different, different uh, projects on that. And I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but I, I, he certainly did play a part and it, he, he wasn't that knowledgeable in the computer area. And that's where I ended up really just diving headfirst in and, and, and became a bit of an expert in that area at, at a young age, at least in the sphere that I was in. Um, and and that wasn't his that wasn't his area. But the 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 drive to understand, the drive to know, hey, I you know I want to see what happens beyond that curtain. Uh, I don't like black boxes. I don't like just trusting that that something you know works because I say it does. Hmm. I want to know why. Yeah, uh, that that drive to understand why. Um, I, really, I, I think is what, uh, you know, it's that curiosity that, that really drew me into, um, engineering, uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, I think that's a yeah. long way around the barn <laughs> to, to, to say that my, that my, yeah, but it, it was, a uh, my dad no, certainly had an effect on me. Yeah. No, that's interesting because, um, I, I think it's, it's also a way of, of finding a connect with your kids, um. And mm-hmm. I remember times my my dad was an electrical engineer and worked in a company that built transformers and uh, DC generators and mm. motors. Um, so he'd take us on these trips to hydroelectric power dams and actually showed us how power was generated. Oh wow! You know, and then that became very interesting because 
part of uh, my course in engineering was uh, to study, um, you know, uh, turbines. We had it as a subject, ah. one of the subjects. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was like, hey, I've seen this. I've actually seen, <laughs> you know, water falling from a waterfall and a dam there and the force of the water actually spinning those turbines and generating right. power. Um, and then That's I right. remember when I came to my second year of college, I had a subject on electrical machines. And, uh, you know, there was these tough problems that we'd given we'd been given to find out the wind, mm-hmm. how much of winding you need to put on a transformer. Oh, that's right. Okay. That's step right. up, step down and all Ratio. of that. And then mm-hmm. uh, he said, why don't you just come with me to the factory one day and I'll actually take you to show you how it's done. And uh, I think oh, that good. for me was like transformational moments to say that I can appreciate what the professors in college are trying to teach us when you actually <laughs> see, you know, how it's that's being right. built and made. Yeah. So what did you do That's after right. that, well, Matt? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no, I was actually going to mention, you know, and I think that's a challenge that we have today with yep. the, the future generations, mm-hmm. that there was so much that was accessible to us when we were kids. Yes. Now, granted, you know, not, not every child could go walk into a hydroelectric plant, but but at least in terms of electronics and computers, um, while they were very nascent, you know, certainly the the the, the PC industry was just, starting to grow you could take it apart you could see it yep. you could figure it out you could yep. you could try things i mean that hell that's how steve wozniak was able to, to go build you know he had discrete components he could put it all together and, and built the apple one um and and nowadays that's not really the case we are at a point where it's not made to open in fact that you avoid mm-hmm. the warranty and it'll, you'll break something because it was made to you know to, to, for privacy concerns. And I understand the reasoning for that, but yeah. boy, it really does inhibit, I think, it the tinkering that was allowed yes. to us as, as kids that now you just, if anybody's like me, if it was a, a version of me who's now eight years old, I don't know where I would find those things in order to, to you know, spur on that curiosity, uh, at least be able to satisfy it, right? To get to a point where I could uh- look at something inside. Absolutely. And I think there's an interesting point right here, because uh, learning design is, is something that interests me. And I always felt that having a combination of involving all your senses when you learn something, or mm-hmm. you know, you're driven through with curiosity, and then you land up learning something, learning is an outcome. Uh, when When it involves all your senses, or when you're engaging all your senses, it's so different. And uh, that's right. I I hear you when you say that today's generation is somewhat um, limited. And yes, uh, mm-hmm. you know, given the fact that they really can't take things apart. Um, uh, you know, today, sometimes I feel that when there were mechanical drives that were rotating inside um, a laptop, you kind of knew that the thing was working. <laughs> That's versus, right. <laughs> versus solid you can put your ear drives. to it. You can hear yeah. like, oh, it's not even on. It's not even spun up yet. You know, yep. that's right. Yep. <laughs> so, I remember that. Yeah. So, Matt, what did you do after that? I mean, uh, where did you go? Well, Study and so I, yeah, I went to a. So I, I grew up on a, a farm in upstate mm. New York in a small ta- okay. small town called Owego, New York, which is um right on the on the banks of the Susquehanna River. A uh, big farm country, lots of, I mean, it's a small town. I grew up uh, surrounded by cows and chickens and corn. 
and uh, and nature, and I, I loved that. But I so I but it also gave me time. It was like, well, there were no kids. There was only one friend that happened to be down the road. But um, you know, really, I was kind of isolated. So I I ended up picking up the computer, and so I moved forward with that. And I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to work in computers in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I went to a school called RIT up in Rochester, New York. I got my uh, my bachelor's in uh, uh, computer engineering um, and had a, a wonderful professor, and he was the head of the department named Roy, Roy Janikowski. And uh, I, I, he, was, uh, uh, <laughs> he was a fantastic professor. Uh, I, he, I, I understood him uh, in, in a way that, that he gave me a, a real love for computer engineering, uh, love for the formality of it. Uh, and, uh, but I, he was, he's also a well-rounded person. He was a, a pianist and, and loved uh, music. And so I, I really looked up to him. Uh, I came, came down to, uh, Austin, Texas after graduation, uh, moved down there and I worked for a company, uh, that you may have heard of called Motorola. And I was there for, for about, uh, 12 years. So I, I worked in the back end, basically everything from the fabrication out, I was responsible for uh, for a product uh, from you know getting it to production, and then I spent the other say two thirds of my time there uh, moving into design, which is where I really wanted to be uh, eventually, and I, I moved into uh, functional design and verification of uh, processors and SOCs, but mainly on system on a chip on PowerPC based processors, RISC processors, mm-hmm. um, which. Uh, which is funny because it, that pendulum has really swung back, hasn't it? Uh, yep. it? It used to be, you know, that that PowerPC was, um, you know, it was in the Mac at the time. Uh, IBM and Motorola had their their partnership and uh, and built that, and uh, and then it kind of went to the wayside. It became something that was, you know, then used in automotive and and networking mm-hmm. chips. But but boy, uh, it really came back into the limelight uh, with with Apple's introduction and. And just showing how that architecture really um, presents a lot of benefits, you know, from a, a power performance and area standpoint. Uh, and so I've, I've been excited to see how that has played out. And uh, but, yeah, that was that was where I, I spent, you know, at Motorola, which became Freescale Semiconductor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked in, in verification there, uh, learning quite a bit about how you how you have to make sure that that chip works when it gets out the door. Right. Yeah, uh, there's. It's and, very and I different think, than software. Yeah, and it, those were the spaces where you actually built to test. You you uh, verify first, and then you code, right? Well, you, you certainly there is an emphasis on on testing, and yeah. you know we call it verification, mm-hmm. um, or I think Intel calls it validation. But regardless, pre-silicon, um, you know, make sure it works, and usually that's done on the design, and you know, in the Verilog or the H, whatever the HDL code. Yep. It's done in a simulation and it's done in, in what's called formal if mm-hmm. you're using assertions. Uh, you know, regardless, there is a real emphasis, as you might imagine, verification because you have to ensure that that, that chip, you know, that, that bugs are not escaping, at least killer bugs, especially, mm-hmm. um, because you don't you don't get to push out a bug fix, you know. <laughs> you, don't, yeah. you don't get to, yeah, there, there's no uh, update to send out. Uh, yep. You've got to respin you know, metal layers or, or whatever it is, or, or my gosh, if it's a full mask change, mm-hmm. it's millions of dollars that's just going to cost. Uh, and so you, I learned about the emphasis of, and the, the thought process that goes into 
verifying uh, that that chips are going to function and how you prioritize that the different methodologies. And it's interesting how that tends to, to spill over into software, but in, in software, it's handled a little bit differently. But I, I really appreciated that experience. Yeah. No, I think uh, people have tried hard to imbibe test-driven development uh, yes. into, into various um, software engineering methodologies. Uh, but that's kind of, uh, I think, because there's so much freedom to write code, I think this kind of, uh, uh, there have been companies that have successfully uh, adopted it. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. but uh, don't see uh, too much of it still. Yeah, I I, I agree. Verification, there, there's so many things that can happen in a chip that you, you, the emphasis given to it in, in, in most companies is is much more than QA is given in a software company. So in a, in a yeah. hardware company, uh, verification, the engine verification engineers typically outnumbered designers, designers mean the chip designers, the logic mm-hmm. designers, uh, at, at least two to one from yeah. what I have seen. Now, maybe that's changed, but um, at the time, verification, you, you, it was a well thought out methodology because mm-hmm. again, you, you, you certainly couldn't, uh, you, you had to get it right the first time as, as best as you could. And so you prioritize uh, what you're going to be working on. You have different types of, of, verification that occurs uh you you might do some directed testing but you also employ some randomized testing uh you may do system level testing in terms of put taking the design and dropping it into an fpga into an emulation environment mm-hmm. where you can mm-hmm. you know try to boot linux on it right and you're you're coming at it from so many different angles uh because the cost of releasing bugs yep. uh, is so enormous and yep. and so i i do believe that software and including test-driven development and others have benefited from the rigor that has gone into the verification activities for for chips and and hardware. Yep, absolutely. What did you do after Motorola and how did you go from, you know, the VLSI EDA space into Mm -hmm. user experience design and as you called it, product requirements, uh, requirements. discovery? You know, in, in chip design or, you know, creation of semiconductors, creation of hardware, design is a required element, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't, you don't, it, it, would, it wouldn't make sense to release a chip without being designed, right? You, yep. you d- design, you, d- you have it in, in every engineering discipline, mechanical, industrial, electrical, civil, there's always an element of requirements and planning that go along with design. And but what's interesting though is that when only when you move into software engineering in that realm, that the term design <clears throat> is kind of relegated to optional. It's relegated to to making pretty screens, you know, <laughs> which is what yeah. UX design, you know, like well, just mm-hmm. just make it look better or make it make it easy to use. Mm-hmm. And then and then you know, directors and managers wonder why projects go sideways or why why budgets are blown. Uh, yep. You know, that's the, I think the challenge design has, you know, for, for, for you know, it, it is what it is, has become in software has become, again, relegated to pretty screens to UX design, when in reality, design is all about requirements. And that means yep. uh, understanding and prioritizing what the needs are uh, for the users, uh, for the business, for the technical team. Uh, and mapping that out in a way that uh, we can execute against with the information that we have now. 
mm-hmm. at that at that time. Um, you know, in software, we do have this benefit that we can iterate and we use it. We use that in uh, in in agile methodologies. You know, in, in that type of arena where uh, we we uh, if we understand that we're going to learn during the process if we're going to learn things in six months that we didn't know today, and that might affect how we, how we, um, you know, uh, build or design this product, then agile is the right way to go. But it also, you know, sometimes I think agile has become synonymous with, well, we'll just, you know, iterate, iterate, iterate. We'll try to get it right, but we're, you know, not spending a lot of time on figuring out what the requirements need to be, um, that that presents, I think, a challenge for everybody downstream, the people who are building it, which is, you know, the the designers, the actual, you know, UX design, the developers, and the QA team. We we need to make sure they have what they need to execute. So, yep. you know, and, and you've you've articulated this in your article, and I'm quoting from there, saying that mm-hmm. um, stakes are high, and as I've witnessed often. They have not received requirements needed to execute efficiently. We're talking about high fidelity visual specifications and the business rules written in well-organized, thorough, dev-ready internal product documentations. When developers can develop and not have to design screens or wait for requirements, products simply get out of the door faster. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That does that, that does sound like something I would say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this is so this uh, is from your uh, uh, you know blog on SemiWiki, uh, mm. and uh, I was I was going through that, and this okay. this really struck me because uh, there's there's very few people that I've seen who um, mention tackling time to market problem, you know, by ensuring that mm-hmm. developers have all that they need to. Uh, yeah. Code it right. And when you uh, referenced iterations that were really going nowhere, um, one uh, one of the problems could be this, right? The, the requirements are That's right. simply not written right or interpreted in the right way. Or why do they have to be you interpreted know, in the first place? Well, that's that's <laughs> right. And, you know, when I've spoken with developers, uh, uh, you know, and and by the way, we we do this periodically. Uh, we at Plantarama will take our user story format, the way that we write our documentation, and we we will speak with you know developers in our network that you know we don't work with. They just happen to be people that we know that are uh, that are, are you know colleagues, former colleagues, and we walk through our our format and we get feedback from them to to make it better because at the end of the day, the developers typically don't want to figure out requirements; they want to code. They want to uh, get the product uh, or the feature done and out the door mm-hmm. uh, because they are the last ones holding the baton. Typically, they they you know <laughs> kind of like I, I remember back to the days in, at Motorola when we had a chip uh, that was going to be taped out. The last ones to hold the baton were the physical layout folks, and inevitably they were. It was like Christmas <laughs> when they would somehow <laughs> always get. The, the the final designs the final HDL and they'd have to go and and uh, uh, work over Christmas to to get this done so it could be taped out and into the fab mm. and I always felt terrible for them but uh, you know they they were the last ones holding the baton before it went out the door there's a lot of pressure on them and I think developers and QA have the same problem 
Yep. Uh, many don't empathize with them, but they sometimes are receiving bullet points, mm-hmm. you know, in a story and saying, hey, we need to go build this. And and sometimes they become the designers too, or product managers, you know, kind of take their their swing at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, that we don't have the team filled out in a in a in a way that everybody who everybody downstream from requirements are receiving exactly what they need in the format they need to be successful. And again, then we wonder why projects go sideways. <laughs> if we focus on getting those requirements delivered with all, you know, not only the best case path, but the exception paths with all the screens that detail exactly what those paths look like um, in high fidelity. So there's no question about how it should work. You'd be surprised how fast and happy developers are <laughs> to yeah. go and build it. <laughs> you know, uh, they're, they're very quick. And QA is the same way. QA, mm. they have to develop test cases to evaluate that it was done correctly in the same way we did in verification. So what we do at Planner M is we actually write the, the not only the user stories, but we write the test case suite mm. for every feature. So the, so the QA team already has a leg up. They already are starting from not square, square one, but they're starting from like square 30. And they already mm. have these test cases written that now they can go and implement and perhaps build upon but we want to accelerate their their uh, their efforts too to get the testing in place because we see, and again, we think a little bit differently. But uh, from from our perspective, um, a bug is a UX issue. It doesn't mm. matter if if the if it's a feature. You know, we kind of have that joke: is it a feature or is it a bug? <laughs> the user doesn't care if it doesn't yeah. work the way they think it should. Yeah, it's it, it's going to impact it's going to impact the product and how it's seen and and received and eventually affect sales. So we treat bugs uh, as as a UX issue that we try to prevent uh, from a design standpoint. Okay, okay, that's interesting. And, you know, um, what is it that you've learned or you use in terms of writing effective stories? And when I say stories, I don't only mean user stories, but also the the non-functional stories. For example, if hmm. there there are you know non-functional requirements that you're looking at, like um, you know data ingestion or scalability mm-hmm. or performance or response times or throughput, sure. um, uh, I've seen that a lot of uh, engineers struggling with uh, first the product managers struggling with articulating those requirements and the mm-hmm. the understanding of those so that you really have a solid foundation or a backend that can support what um, is needed uh, upfront. So if there's like a million users that's trying to, Mm -hmm. that are constantly accessing the system, uh, it has to be available. It has to, um, you know, retrieve, uh, continuously ingest data, uh, do some processing, um, give responses, especially today where people are um, probably looking for responses in near real time to take decisions, to decide, let's mm-hmm. say, um, you know, how can I, let's say, optimize my marketing spend? Uh, where should mm-hmm. I put in, um, you know, if I am advertising here, will it give me a better no. ROI? You know, stuff like that. Right. So right, how, right. what have you done to sort of, encourage people or write better stories. Stay tuned for our next episode 
featuring the continuation of this conversation with Matt Genovese, founder and CEO of Planorama Design, where we begin with writing good stories to deliver great software. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.